I stopped reading for so long because I was reading books that I just didn't understand, couldn't connect with them. Um, one day I just started reading, I read actually The Poppy War and it was the first time I read a book by an Asian author about an Asian protagonist and it kind of just changed my life. Um, I started reading diverse books because I finally realized that there's something to relate to and it just kind of turned into like a passion project of mine to connect people to those books because I know so many people who have stopped reading because they also didn't connect with books. Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lon, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. If you're hearing this episode on release day, then we're currently in the month of May, and that means happy Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. I'm joined by editor and blogger Amanda Kong, who, through her blog Bookish Brews, celebrates diverse voices in books. In this episode, we talk about Asian American speculative fiction novels, our own personal experiences seeing ourselves on the page, and what more can be done to welcome diversity in the industry. So Amanda, I am so glad to have you with me. Uh, we've been following each other for a little while on Twitter. Can you tell me about yourself and your blog, Bookish Brews? Hi. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Um, yeah, so my blog started as reading just diverse books because I realized, um, you know, I hadn't really read diverse books. I stopped reading for so long because I was reading books that I just didn't I just didn't understand, couldn't connect with them. Um, one day I just started reading, I read actually The Poppy War, um, and it was the first time I read a book by an Asian author about an Asian protagonist, and it kind of just changed my life. Um, I started yeah. reading so much more. Um, I started reading diverse books because I finally realized that there's something to relate to. Um, and it just kind of turned into like a passion project of mine to connect people to those books because I know so many people who have just stopped reading because they also didn't connect with books, you know, especially when you're reading like, you know, books in high school and they're giving you these books that just kids just don't like um, a lot of times. Um, and so I just wanted to connect people with those books. And so I started promoting them and realized how important that was and how impactful that could be to certain people. And it just, it just kept growing. And I just eventually made a blog for it. And it's, it's a ton of fun. And I get to connect with people like you because of it. I really appreciate what you're doing because when I, I had a similar experience growing up, and for me, there was so little in representation in books that growing up in, I live in a I don't have a very large Asian community where I grow up. My mother was my main connection to my heritage and my culture. And I had Amy Tan, uh, but it was a constant reminder of some of the, you know, the more the sad relationship issues between generations. And if I wanted to read more fun fantasy books or science fiction books, 
then the identity was completely void uh, of something that I related to. And as a result, growing up and like that, you kind of lose that identity. And when I started finding books that had Asian American representation, I remember crying the first time I did because I was like, I see myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's amazing. So, okay. So then your mission is to, uh, let me try that one again. Your mission (laughs) is to decolonize your bookshelf. Uh, Can you walk us through what that process uh, looks like? Yeah. So the, it's a little, it's a little vague, right? I mean, it could mean so many things. Decolonization means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Um, But I think we all know what colonization is, right? Like people move from one area to another and they keep those ties with their mother uh, nation um, and they end up, wow, I'm just terribly describing colonization. Um, But essentially like, you know, they go to different places and they institute structural legal systems, um, which systematically disadvantages people. Um, And when you do that on a systematic level, you end up erasing people's voices, right? Because the people who benefit from that start to think that they are superior, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. and that starts to be reflected in everything, right? The forthcoming legislation, which is what we often think about, um, just who is the majority in a certain nation and um, who has those privileges, but also it seeps into art. Um, And I think art is something that it's so difficult to take um, the colonization part out of art because people are influenced by art and we want to invest in um, or we want to just contribute to the landscape, the culture, right? Especially for people like us who are, you know, people of color and we want to, we are disadvantaged in our system, um, but we want to contribute to art, right? Like you're a writer, um, but it's just, it's difficult, right? Because we're getting inspiration from people who have felt superior to us, for example, you know, um, like absolutely I, I see that I see that in the arts and culture side too so I used to be a fashion photographer on the local scene and I used to take photos of a lot of you know want, like models that wanted to enter break into the industry uh, many times I've worked with uh, modeling agencies for fashion events and I used to really push in my portfolio minority faces yeah but what I realized was that the only ones that seemed to take off or have any sort of pull or influence were the blonde, like Caucasian white women. And it was so discouraging for me because I was trying to diversify that field and I felt like a drop in a tiny bucket. I'm sorry, a tiny drop in a big bucket. (laughs) Well, we we are, you know, like we, when you look at, um, you know, like you can see it a little more prominently in like television and things rather than books because, you know, not as many people read as consume like TV or movies. Um, But you look at all those actors and at least, you know, it's, it's better now, but like when you look at it like five, 10 years ago, which really Mm -hmm. isn't that long, I like didn't even know any Asian American actors or actresses, which is crazy. I mean, wild, you know, um, to think. I enjoy Netflix has, 
done a great job in their original series of bringing diversity into their programming. And I remember when it first started happening, I was like, well, thank God for Netflix. Because I, I think if there wasn't a Netflix or a streaming platform that embraced it, we'll continue to not see that on the major studios uh, sites. Yeah, it's it's a lot, you know, and when you grow up and you don't see people that look like you or characters that act like you or relate to you, you start to you start to lose who you are, you know, like you Mm -hmm. lose that connection you have. Like you said, you only had your connection to your mom for your Asian side. um, And that that's not enough, you know, Mm -hmm. but if we start to see it in media, television, movies, books, um, and we start to read those experiences, start to consume those experiences, there's a chance, you know, that we'll start to embrace it more. Um, And that's really what bookish bruise is all about you know it's like trying to connect those people to those stories to make them not feel so dissociated from who they are because I when I was growing up I felt so dissociated from my Asian side like Mm -hmm. I grew up with a single mom and I'm mixed so I am half Asian half white and my mom was white Um, and so I literally had not a single person Um, who is Asian in my life and that that's detrimental to someone for their like identity right Mm -hmm. and I didn't start identifying strongly as Asian American until I started reading books where people were you know Asian and Asian people existed Mm -hmm. um, which is a lot (laughs) Um, but if if books and media can do that for me I know that it can do that for other people, right? And that's really what decolonization, decolonizing my bookshelf means. Absolutely. And I relate to you with the mixed race. I'm half, uh, half Vietnamese, half, I guess you could say, white, but my dad yes, is me predominantly too. <laughs> Irish. <laughs> so, uh, my, that's my breakdown. And there's a very interesting, there's a delicate charm that I at least have to use all the time when interacting with people from one race or the other, because I fear alienation from all sides. Mm -hmm. And um, it's that feeling of not really belonging any which way. And I've started reading books where that same feeling has been has been shown that that delicacy, Mm -hmm. uh, that sensitivity. And that's what I think is so important about reading stories from many cultural perspectives, because when you're raised in one set way of thinking, it's very easy to assume this is the way it always is and how it should be. And I'm not just like systemically thinking, but even like the way you're raised in your specific family unit and finding Mm -hmm. out how your friend's family unit is run, you know. Um, right. Something could, this doesn't even have to be something about race or identity or anything. Like it could literally just be your family unit. Right. Absolutely. Cause like maybe something's happening in your home that is not right. Um, and you just have no concept because that's all, you know. Um, and so reading from different perspectives can really help you with that. Exactly. Okay. So let's talk about some of, uh, some book recommendations. Um, we're looking at speculative <laughs> fiction. I'd love to hear uh, what your thoughts are. My, first of all, I'm really excited to talk to you about this. I'm planning to write these titles down. Most of the books I've read from um, an Asian American experience tend to be compl- not speculative fiction. They're young adult romance, they're literary or historical fiction, m- memoir. So um, yeah, tell me what, what you like to recommend. Yeah. So you know, the diversity in publishing right now is much more diverse in a YA landscape. And 
that's just how it is. Um, yeah. So I have a lot of recommendations for like YA. Um, I do have older ones, um, you know, and I mostly read either speculative fiction or romance. So I, I got a ton for you. <laughs> oh, awesome. Perfect. So um, a good one that I actually just finished a couple days ago was Severance um, by Ling Ma, I think. Um, that one was really awesome. I think, um, I was actually listening to another one of your episodes about dystopia and severance is actually a dystopia with an Asian American main character. Um, and so I wanted to (laughs) recommend that one first. Um, but it's, it's really, it's really good. Um, there's another one that I think is very interesting. Um, and I think will also relate to you and me being Vietnamese women is the chosen and the beautiful. Oh, oh my gosh. Okay. I was going to talk about this too. <laughs> I just finished it. Okay. Tell me what oh, you think did. about it. Yes. Yeah. It's beautiful. I love, um, I think there's like a whole episode that we could talk about, about retellings and reimaginings um, and just like taking, you know, a white American story because, you know, th- so, so for those who don't know, right, The Chosen and the Beautiful isn't a reimagining of The Great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's just something powerful about taking such a, you know, quote, the great American novel um, and inserting a Vietnamese woman into the narrative um, and adding magic, right? Because we have magic in our everyday lives. Um, and I just, I thought it was beautiful. We don't really hear too much about the character that is made Vietnamese in the original Gatsby. And we finally get to hear, you know, more depth, right? It adds, it adds so much when we can kind of take it and make it our own because we are all given the Gatsby um, to read in high school, probably, um, and taking it and just reimagining it and just putting our own spin on it. um, It gives it so much more depth. It helps us understand story so much more it's so good (laughs) I love it okay so I wrote a quick analysis um on this one so since we're on the topic uh for those that are interested in reading this book uh The Great Gatsby written from Jordan's perspective which is Daisy's best friend if Jordan was an adopted woman originally from Vietnam and so she's raised in a white family surrounded by white society but she's constantly aware that she doesn't quite fit in with her surroundings by especially the racist remarks that are constantly being saying or said around her. And then it's always followed up with no offense, Jordan. We're not talking mm-hmm. about you, Jordan, totally. which uh, I can relate. Yeah. To. <laughs> that is literally my entire childhood. <laughs> yes. Um, that feeling of being the exception to her friends as if she's not the same as other minorities, but having that, that very unique glimpse into that systemic racism that, you know, like they feel comfortable around you. So now you're going to hear these things. Uh, what I really loved about this is that she eventually does find someone else from Vietnam. And as you said, there's magic in this book and they end up exhibiting the same type of magic. And so she, just like how I feel reaching out to people of the Asian American community, learn from them, learn about your own identity, your own strengths. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, and I think the one other thing I wanted to say about the magic, the way that this book approaches magic is so interesting to me. It's so subtle. It slips in every now and then to the point where you're not quite sure if this is intended to be a magic book or not, but it's almost like the magic you feel when you're drunk, like you're, you're <laughs> enjoying yourself at a party. And it's bubbly. Yeah. Yes. You're, you're having your high and suddenly magic happens. And that's exactly how the magic is portrayed in this book. 
You know, I really related to the magic in The Chosen and the Beautiful because, um, you know, when we're talking about how Jordan doesn't really, you know, understand or she does, she doesn't hasn't been around Asian American women or men or just people, you know, um, and when she finally meets those people with the same kind of magic, it is that reach out um, and finally like feeling like you can relate to someone. Um, but what I really like about it is that that magic is real, you know, like it may not be described in the same way, but when, when I grew up and I finally started, you know, sitting down with Vietnamese women, um, like we're doing today, it is magic. It feels magic. It feels bubbly. There's a little bit of a high because I didn't get to experience that. And they, and like, you know, we just relate on a different level in a way that I had never experienced before. And that, that to me is magic. Yes, absolutely. I, I completely agree. Well, I'm, I'm so glad we got to talk about this book together then because I just finished it and it, it is one of my favorites now. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I want to read it again. <laughs> um, it is very, it's been a while since I read it, but it is, it's very good. I think about it all the time. Um, I love when we can take magic um, and just throw it into a novel. So, I mean, relatedly, I believe that fantasy, science fiction, speculative fiction is the strongest when it enhances humanity, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like The Chosen and the Beautiful really did that, um, especially in a way that like I can relate to and I know you can as well. Um, and I just think it's wonderful. Do you think that The Chosen and the Beautiful also takes because I, I read The Great Gatsby back in high school. And while I was reading this book, I kept texting my friend who is a huge fan of The Great Gatsby because I felt like the book did such a good job of really highlighting Gatsby's predatory nature. Yes. And I couldn't <laughs> remember if the original Great Gatsby did the same thing or not. Uh, but I felt like it really captured the red flags about him. And I feel like that's a very uniquely woman perspective. And I yes. appreciated seeing that. Yeah, I think I, I also haven't read The Great Gatsby in a long time. Um, but I think something that I find interesting about The Great Gatsby is it's a very short novel, right? If it were to be published today, we would consider it a novella. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't realize that in high school when I read it, um, because books were just, you know, annoying, because I didn't understand yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it really gave me uh, like, um, an opening to really dive into things like that and I think um she just did such a good job of like understanding that um you could develop it right and just like mm -hmm. what what makes sense copying the grandeur but also copying the like creepy Gatsby what the heck is going on exactly um, <laughs> and really being able to dive into it without making it too long so it, it was a really strategic decision to do Gatsby. Also, like, pretty sure she just loves the Gatsby, which is, you know, a lot of people do. Yes, and very evident in the way she captures the narration and the, and the mm -hmm. visuals. Okay, so what else do you have for me? Oh, okay, let's see. Um, this is the one that kind of changed my life. It's a little more on, you know, not as strictly, like, fantasy. It's more of a magical realism, which, you know, that's an aside is that a lot of, um, you know, Asian stories and a lot of, or a lot of people who are writing from previously colonized nations will write more magical realism than fantasy, um, kind of consider it 
fantasy still because that's just how we in America view fantasy. Yes. Um, yeah, because it's a very fantastical incorporation of belief systems. Um, yeah, and you yeah. know, we we have magic in our everyday lives, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, if something, if I'm hoping for luck, I'll light a candle, and that's just I don't know, just something that I just feel is going to happen. It's it's real, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um. Anyway, so the book that I want to recommend is called Folklore. Okay. Um. It is. It's like a combination of forlorn and folklore. Um, but it's about this Asian American woman um, who kind of ran away from her Asian life in Southern California and pursued a very strict and regimented um, science, scientific field of study. Um, and she's like a doctor and she like goes to like Antarctica to study, right, to be a scientist. Um, but what I found so interesting about that is that she ran away from that magic that we were talking about, right, in her home life um, and just the beliefs that her parents have just because it's it's not easy being an immigrant, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and she ran away from that going to science to because it's strict and regimented. And as she lives her life, she kind of starts to be haunted by these ghosts that she ran away from and I just think that metaphor is just absolutely beautiful um so I highly recommend Folklorn as well this is Folklorn by Angela Her. yeah say that okay oh this looks amazing okay it's, it's a Korean it's myth okay yes. yeah Great. and it, it incorporates so many Korean myths into the narrative um and I think that's just stunning right like we the the average reader who may not know Korean folklore, which I didn't, um, can read these stories and then it connects to the main character. Um, and it's just very cool the like way that it ebbs and flows from myth to that rigidity of science. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's such a strong metaphor for, you know, how we um, are assimilating or dissociating or like living our lives here you know, away from our like homeland. I, I love that idea of taking traditions and, and combining the folklore uh, with that kind of modern narrative. Um, Because as I'm thinking about this, the the day-to-day magic within the culture, uh, a book I'm currently writing right now, I had to do a lot of research on hungry ghosts. Are you familiar with hungry ghosts? I'm not. Tell me all about them. Okay. So <laughs> it is, it's fascinating. Um, I am, fa- it's funny. I'm familiar with the traditions behind hungry ghosts, but I didn't realize that's what it was called until I, I started doing a deep dive. So it's a Taoist Buddhist belief that uh, there's a certain month out of the year, a lunar month, where the, the gates to the afterlife are open and ghosts can come back and walk the earth. And um, during that time, there's a lot of a lot of traditions that you do. You don't go out at night. Don't go swimming. Um, don't pick up things off the off the ground. You know, just be mm-hmm. safe, essentially. And I can definitely see that ingrained in just when you're leaving your mom's home, and your mom's like, "Don't you know? <laughs> don't go out at night." You know, just like the, the superstitions that I would hear all the time. And the hungry ghost. There's two types. There's the kind the, the idea that these ghosts have been. Um, traveling the earth for a while and they're hungry. So people leave food shrines out on the street 
And right. it's usually like a to-go box or carton and there's incense sticks. And the idea, don't touch those. Those are sacred. And then um, at the midpoint of the month, there's a hungry ghost festival. And that's when people come to honor their loved ones. They burn joss paper, which, you know, you see them mostly as money, but uh, mm-hmm. like fake money. But you can also buy joss paper to look like your your recently deceased's favorite food or item like a playstation whatever and you burn those <laughs> yeah and it becomes a ceremonial honor and um it's just this amazing uh culture beautiful, that surrounds yeah. very beautiful but then there's a sinister hungry ghost so there's like the generic Wonderful. hungry ghost there's a sinister <laughs> one and those are the ones that were awful people in there when they were alive and so when they become dead they become like terrible uh ghosts and those ones um are are very scary looking and so when i'm as i'm researching this i'm like this is amazing so i'm trying to write this and what's amazing about it is it's not just like a magic book it's you're talking about what people believe and what they have ceremonies about and have traditions and and uh, what's the word um trying to think when uh superstitions uh so anyway i just wanted to right yeah that is really cool no, yeah, that's beautiful. Wait, so your your novel incorporates the hungry ghost in it? Yes, yes. Beautiful. Yeah, it's about a girl who's I'm it's I'm an own own voice writer. I try to be as authentic to my unique perspective as possible. Um and so mine's about a girl who recently lost her mom and goes to reconnect with her mom's community, uh, childhood community in Washington. So my mom is alive, thankfully. She's up in, <laughs> right. she's up in Washington. And there's not that community. much own voices. Yes. <laughs> she's got an amazing Asian American community that she currently lives in. So when I went to visit her, I was blown away. And I am like, I have to capture this feeling, this feeling of um, finding people that look like my mom and in a way me, um, that feeling of security, but also that feeling of inadequacy where I'm yeah. like, am I good enough? You know? Um, so that's what the book focuses on. And because she's entering into an Asian American community, I wanted their lore and traditions to literally come to life. And it's a fan, it's a fantasy sci-fi book. So it's a lot of fun. I'm halfway through it. We'll see if I can finish it this year. <laughs> well, I believe in you. Oh, thank um, you. But I, I feel like that's such a strong like thing that, um, diverse books do um is like taking those myths and reminding everyone that we believe in them and what we believe in is real um Mm. and we like you know your story it like brings those folklores and those like things to life um but I think something that people can gain from reading diverse books is that these things are real to us and things are only real if we give them meaning, right? Mm-hmm. Like time's not real. Money's not real. Like money is only real because we believe it's real, you know? Yes. And that's, that's the same thing with like these folk stories and these, these magical things, right? And so like a lot of the things that I read are a lot of fantasy, um, but a lot of them have a lot. That goes back to what I was saying about like, you know, like a magical realism perspective, right? Because these things, they're just real to us. Mm-hmm. They're not folklore like ever like we call them they're not like myths right they are who we are absolutely okay uh so that was we just talked about folklore by angela her and which is i'm looking it up right now we have magical realism fairy tale fantasy fiction and psychological fiction so that sounds amazing i'm gonna go download <laughs> that after we're done talking all right so do you have any other uh, recommendations um, let's see. I recently read The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea by Axie O, which was beautiful as well. 
Um, it's another retelling, um, which I think is, I think is fantastic, right? I think that we should lean into retellings more um, because if we think back to like where stories began, um, stories weren't originally in written form. Um, they were told orally, which is, you know, an argument for audiobooks aside. <laughs> um, yeah. But they were told orally, and that means that every single time that a story was retold, it changed. Um, and so I love reading retellings um, and just seeing how the author has kind of changed things. Um, it also kind of debunks the idea that there's like a right version of the story, right? Because these stories are meant to serve us. Mm -hmm. and stories if they don't serve us um there's no point in them um and so they should be evolving with with our needs um and so the girl who fell beneath the sea is a beautiful retelling of uh, sorry this is not a vietnamese i don't know it's shim chiong um but it's it's just really interesting to understand the myth but knowing that it's a modern it's it's written in a way that's going to serve us today right and so it's almost arguably more valuable and i think that is it's beautiful it's the cover of that book is like stunning i'm um, looking at it right now it's gorgeous <laughs> and the writing matches it perfectly right like the way that the writing is looks as flowing and as light and as magical as that that cover looks um and i just think that it's it's beautiful. And I think that everybody should read more retelling. So I want to like push it. <laughs> very, very cool. I love this. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> Lost my voice for a second. <laughs> um, okay. So I might, I only have, I'm going to jump in real quick, go back and forth a little bit. I have one other book that I wanted to recommend. Unfortunately, it's a little bit of an incomplete recommendation because I'm currently, I'm halfway through it. It's okay. called How to Live Safely in a Science Fiction Universe by Charles Yu. Yes, have you heard I've of that heard one? Heard of it? I have not read it. I have actually been recommended that book multiple times, so I think your recommendation might hold up. <laughs> okay, it's a it's a quirky book. Um, it is okay. First of all, it's about a main the main character. He is his own main character, right? So it's a self aware narrator and um, narrative. He's a time machine mechanic. So he goes around fixing time machines for people who get stuck in the past. He talks a lot about how um, a lot of the times when people go use time machines, obviously we're talking about a future where it's commercialized and people can use it yeah. uh, for their purposes, is to always go back to the worst day of their lives and you know the death of somebody, they want to save somebody. And unfortunately, if you weren't there at the death of your mom, for example, then you can't beat, like you can't break the, the rules of time I guess and be there then so he um I'm not sure how this works and how things are regulated <laughs> clearly but he has to go back and find people and um the the whole point of it though is it centers around family dynamics and you have a lot of regret and um looking looking constantly to the past and not only is the book about people going time traveling to the past but for example his mother is retiring and they have these things called time loop retirement centers um and you can depending on how much money you have you can go in there and live out the rest of your life reliving the same loop and his mom chose to live the same 60 minute loop of a dinner of the family that technically didn't really even happen but it's what she wished happened yeah. and so she's just constantly living in that past and then her father his father 
um, who I believe is not alive at this time, was the inventor of time travel. And so you have a lot of feelings of inadequacy. You have that classic father-son um, estrangement um, conflicts uh, related to that. And it's so ultimately the book's about broken families. And uh, I found that to be so interesting. But something that, that makes this book so fun is he's not just in a sci-fi world. He's in a science fiction world. It's very meta. So they talk okay. about the rules of like fiction universes and Luke Skywalker's son makes an appearance. It's so random. Oh, um, I see. I see. Oh, yeah. that is fun. That's very quirky. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it can feel very technical. So if you're like reading it and you have no idea what's going on, you're like, I feel like this could be true. It's very scientific sounding. Uh, but yeah, I just thought I'd add that to the list. No, that's a good one. I think that's interesting. Um in relation to how science fiction and fantasy kind of work together. I mean, you said it in your, for your writing, right? Like it's science fiction and fantasy kind of. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we often think that they're so different, Um, but they're not that different, especially when we're seeing it from perspectives of like underprivileged people or like Mm -hmm. previously colonized or currently colonized nations, right? They're like not as different as um, we tend to think, right? We tend to think science fiction is like all techie and like all um, just like space travel and mm-hmm. like things that could like quote unquote realistically we could get there. Um, yeah. Whereas fantasy is like unexplained magic. Um, but I think it's really interesting how the two genres connect because they're they're the same, right? Because in that in that story, it's science fiction and fantasy, right? Because Luke Skywalker yeah. is not real. Yeah, um, exactly. Or is he, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but they're they're so they're so similar, right? Especially for like someone writing from maybe a perspective where the society doesn't have the same kind of technology that maybe we have here in America, right? Like um, that could be completely plausible to them. And so I think that's very interesting to see how um, diverse novels kind of like find that balance a lot of the time. Exactly. And especially when you're going into the world of hypothetical and it's fictionalized mm-hmm. to the point where, yeah, of course, you're going to incorporate some fantasy. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a great take. Any other books that you have? Um, yeah. yeah. So I also recently read this one just came out, um, How High We Go in the Dark, okay. um, which is I forgot who the author is, but it's, it's brand new. So I haven't heard like How High We much. Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nagamatsu. Yes. Hope I said that correctly. Okay. Um, So what I really liked about How High We Go in the Dark um, was, I mean, well, first of all, it was a little uncomfortable, right? Because it's about um, a pandemic, essentially. And, you know, you know, um, but what I really liked about this story is it doesn't have the traditional structure that we have um, in a lot of the commercial books that we read today. It's like a collection of interconnected short stories to talk about the story of humanity and how humans and Asian Americans specifically kind of navigate through the pandemic and learn to find our humanity and learn to find um, how to continue to move on. Um, And so I really loved, you know, the seeing a story from a different perspective, right? Because commercial fiction oftentimes has such a very strict story structure. Um, but this, sto- this story of it, or this novel, which is interconnected short stories, it kind of breaks that up, which is another thing that um, can help us, again, decolonize our bookshelf is understanding that 
the way that we read or write in the same like formula that we know sells, which is what publishers buy because mm -hmm. they know it sells. Um, but when we read stories in different structures, we understand that there's not one way to tell a story. Um, and so I thought this novel did a really good job of just showing an overall story of humanity and Asian Americans living through a pandemic um, instead of like the one one main character who has a lot of agency kind of goes through mm -hmm. trials um, and comes out victorious on the end which is a very structured novel we've all read like 200 novels like that um, but how high we go in the dark kind of changes it a little um, and I thought it was very good I I'm I have pulled up the NPR uh, review on it and there's a section in it that uh, I find to be fascinating and I'm sure people like this will definitely be a hook for some people that are looking for a new book to read they talk about it's the cynicism of how death gives way to flourishing commerce hotels where clients can stage macabre final moments with their loved ones for closure bitcoin whose value rises and falls with death tolls and social media profiles that allow digital ghosts to live past their failed flesh and blood bodies yeah interesting very fascinating. The I think what's also cool about the narrative is it seems to get a little more strange as it goes on. Okay. Um, it builds you up to under to it builds you up to remember that um, the way that we cope is weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is. <laughs> yeah. Um, and at the beginning, it's you know it's a little weird, but it's like not as unrealistic as we think but as it goes on we start to see these coping methods that are like completely absurd right like there's one story where some someone gets really attached to like a talking pig which is so strange mm -hmm. but it, as the story goes on it builds you up to believe it right you're yeah. like oh this is so tragic even though if you were to start with that story you would be like what yeah. what is <laughs> Well, that sounds very folklore, too. I remember reading mm -hmm. stories about, you know, people dying and coming back as animals. And I don't know if that's what's going on here, but the idea of suddenly there's a talking animal and it making is, a connection yeah. with them. It is. Yeah, it's very connected. It's very interesting the way because it's so many short stories, you're allowed to like draw so many different conclusions um, as to what's happening in the world, um, how everyone's coping, how we would have to cope potentially. Um, and it's, if you look at the society perspective and like the capitalism perspective, there's like theme parks to um, understand death, right? For children. It's just so interesting, the types of things that we as a society come up with and start to sell. Um, yes. It's just very fascinating. It's a very, it's very good. Um, I believe it's going to, be winning awards <laughs> and did it just come out it look. did yeah I okay it's pretty new okay yeah, it came yeah. Out in january okay i'm i'm saving all these i'm opening up windows as we go and i'm like all right i know what i'm gonna be doing <laughs> in the next few months okay cool. good you should you should awesome anything else um let's see so i mentioned this at the beginning but i feel like i would be remiss if i didn't say the poppy war um it is vastly popular I'm sure most people have heard of it it's absolutely amazing but um something that I think is it's it's for 
first of all, the very first novel that I read, I read, said this already, but it's the very first novel that I read written by an Asian American author with an Asian protagonist, which again, changed my life. It honestly like helped push me towards like reading more diverse books because I finally like understood. Um, but what I think that is really amazing about The Poppy War, it's a very difficult novel, first of all, like huge disclaimer, it's not an easy novel to read. Um, but what's interesting is that Rebecca Kwong, she takes a historical event and she fan puts it into fantasy worlds. Um, and it's a historical event that honestly like is suppressed. Like we do not hear about it. It's the, the rape of Nanking. Mm, yes. Okay. Um, I had no idea this happened before I read the book because it's just not something that we teach here in America, right? Which is mm -hmm. similar to how me trying to grapple with my Vietnamese heritage is I try and research Vietnam and I get only things about the Vietnam War, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's obvious that, you know, there's a narrative that is shown here in America, but like what we can do with fiction um, and what Rebecca Kwong did here is she took a story that we don't hear about very often and she brought it into popular culture um, to remind us of our past. It's immortalizing um, a historical event and something that her family had to go through and just, wow. you know, yeah, it's very I cool. I can see how you would say this is a difficult read, if that's the topic matter. Yes. It is, it's a very difficult read. It is definitely not easy, but um, something that I watched a panel that Rebecca was in one time and she was talking about how adding fantasy to terrible events, because um, it's historical fantasy, right? Um, mm -hmm. But adding fantasy to historical events, especially ones that are very close to us, um, it allows us to take half a step back. Um, and though we're telling a very personal story, Right, because this is something that um, her family was, I don't know how involved with, but um, was un has trauma from at the very least. Um, but adding that fantastical elements of like the gods and the magic, um, mm. it allows her to take a step back and kind of shield everyone from it while still yeah. remaining at least as much true or as true as she can be to what actually happened. Um, and I think that's another thing that goes with the how magic is real to us, right? Because that yeah. is, that's how we remember. Um, and that's how we immortalize things. Um, and, you know, like fantasy, they say was the first type of story, because that's just how we understood the world. Yeah. And it's like taking back ownership, too, of the event yeah. and being able to, to control that narrative. Right. And being able to go back and instead of reading like um, an academic article, we start to see the nuance in it. Right. Because we're creating characters in it and we start to feel empathy towards the characters, regardless of if they're like good characters, bad characters or whatever it may be. But they're we're adding humanity to it. Um, yes. So it's something very powerful that fiction allows us to do. Yes. So for those listening that haven't heard, is it Nanjing or Nanking? I saw it as both. 
How should I we have seen it as it? both, so okay. I'm not exactly sure, unfortunately. Okay, so for those that aren't aware of the Nanking massacre, um, the rape of Nanking, it's just this terrible, brutal time um, where I believe it was it was it was Japan mm-hmm. um, invaded, and then over like a six month six week period, um, brutally raped and murdered hundreds of thousands of people, and yes. I. I, I know that this isn't broadly taught, but for some, we, t- we touched on it very, very briefly in my, I was taking an honors, maybe that's why I was taking an honors <laughs> history class. <laughs> it was Honestly, you could have class. had a good teacher. It, very true. Yes. And it was a really good opportunity. We had, um, uh, usually in my school, there's always at least maybe one or two other people of Asian American um, heritage in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And uh, me being from Vietnam, I knew a lot about the Vietnam War and my mom's experiences with that and the French because she lived in a French colonized area. But I wasn't familiar with I didn't have personal connections to this one. And there was a, another person in the classroom that spoke to it and was able to explain, you know, th- th- this is one of those reasons why there continues to be animosity between these communities today. Yes. And um, just learning that, uh, I was like, wow, it doesn't even in no other context do you see that in American teaching? And so I think we learned about that for a day, honestly. Yeah. Maybe like on. five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. That's, you had a good teacher. That's amazing. I definitely are, you know, our education system is just a whole nother topic, but it's not just, it's just not something that's common knowledge. I feel like. No, it's not. And I remember being really curious growing up and going, when am I going to learn about the world of Aladdin? Like I knew Aladdin, the <laughs> Disney movie, right? And right. I'm like, okay, where, where is it? And never learning about the heritage or history or nothing, you know, nothing. in my public school. Yes, me neither. <laughs> that's cute though. Like wanting, that's, that's something that's like, it's, it's cute that you were thinking that, but it's something that's really powerful to um, think about, right? Because we, mm-hmm. as we diversify um, the media, TV, Uh, movies, books, will start to have kids, especially YA, which is why it's so great that YA is more diverse, will start to have kids thinking, wait, why aren't we learning about this? You know, and, and I truly believe that art is culture, right? Obviously, TV is culture, movies are culture. um, But what I truly believe is that culture precedes legislation. Um, so as we have these stories out here, we will start to see a push towards legislation that's going to be more equal for everyone. I love that because you're right. 100%. It's about the influence of, of the culture of that community. Right. Because if, if we're reading books by many different perspectives um, and we only hear our education from one, one perspective, kids are going to start questioning it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what we want. And it's so important for us to read diverse books, push diverse books, and just like, it helps us personally, but it also helps the entire community. Exactly. Well, I'm glad you talked about that one. Um, (laughs) I've learned, I knew about that one. I hear, I see it all over book talk. I start to read it and then I get really sad. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's very sad, but it's it's very difficult. It's, it's very important. Yeah, I think um, there are people who are writing very groundbreaking novels, um, who are going to be able to like these stories like this are going to really impact us in the future. What's your favorite? What is the favorite one you've ever read that really, if you haven't talked about it already? 
Um, my favorite book. Oh, that is like the hardest question in the whole wide world. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a little less um like fantasy, but it still has a little bit of magical realism books. I mm-hmm. um my my friend wrote it. She's gonna be embarrassed that I talked about it. <laughs> Um, but the fortunes of jaded women comes okay. out in September. Um, and because we're friends, I was incredibly fortunate to get an early copy. Um, and I think I definitely recommend this to you because it's about Vietnamese women. Um, the magical realism is a lot more subtle. Um, but I, I guess it's important to talk about, right? Because, um, it will expand our idea of fantasy because, um, I was I was reading recently that like all fiction is fantastical. It just depends on like what we're making fantastical, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, for example, like a museum heist is still fantastical. Like your average person is not going to be able to do that, even though there's not magic, right? Right. Um, so the fortunes of jaded women is about um, a family curse that comes from. Vietnam into America as we immigrated to America and to Orange County, California, Little Saigon. Um, And this generational curse is that every woman in the family has to have a a daughter. Um, And that's important in Vietnamese culture, right? Because um, Vietnamese women, um, when they pass on, can only come visit their family if they're recognized on the family altar. Um, and in addition, they can only be, women can only bring forth, um, people to recognize on the altar with permission from their husband. Right. So it's like a detrimental, um, curse to the family. But what's beautiful about it is that that's the magical realism part, but what's beautiful about it is that curse is obviously a allegory to, um, generational trauma and immigrant trauma and all of that. It's, it's beautiful. The story is about many women in the family through three generations. So we start to see um, just different perspectives of Vietnamese women and how Vietnamese women can be everything, right? Like we can have um, very smart or very reckless or Mm -hmm. very hilarious or very stubborn, but, and, different these different women or they could all be all of those things right it just adds depth to them and I just think it's an absolutely beautiful novel um and I love the subtlety of the magic and bringing it goes back this is complete opposite spectrums of the poppy war right where we're adding fantastical elements to take half a step back to kind of protect ourselves but that curse in the novel does the same thing in the fortunes of jaded women right it allows us to um, not name generational trauma, but we see it as a curse, yes. um, which is very similar, right? And it's interesting to kind of relate like something so second world fantasy as the poppy war to something very subtle, magical realism, like the fortunes of jaded women, but it's just something that we see so often, especially in Asian, um, Asian American writing. It's okay. I, I've got to speak <laughs> on this part where you said, like being able to use the magic to kind of protect us or shield us a little bit from the what really the issue is yes. that perfectly when I was first writing my first book the one that's currently being on, it's on submissions right now I 
really wanted to talk about my relationship with my mom and the intergenerational trauma there. And mm-hmm. I was like, I have a hard time, like growing up, right, my one exposure to everything was Amy Tan. And that was such a raw look at, you know, relationships between generations that I was like, I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired of that. Like I, I need something to shield me so that um, it doesn't hurt so bad. And yeah. um, to me, it was, it was abs- a, a humor, sci-fi absurdism. Yes. And by, by doing that, that was probably the most therapeutic book I ever read. It's about, um, and I mentioned this before in previous episodes, but it's about a mother and daughter who are estranged. And then an alien invasion happens and the daughter goes back to the home to make sure her mom's okay. And now they're, they're, they go on an adventure together to try to survive this invasion, but they're overcoming this conflict. And yes. by putting that shield of alien invasion and just really <laughs> leaning into the humor of everything, it was like probably the best writing. Ex- I wrote that book in four months. Like it was just a speed oh, that's write. So fast. <laughs> yeah. But it was, I think, probably because I was getting a lot of, like, a life out, you know, onto yeah, the page. exactly. Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about how speculative fiction shines the most when it enhances humanity and things that we know today, mm-hmm. right? And it also goes back to how magic is real because the magic that we have enhances our humanity. Yes. Um, and so it's not only a shield, but it's an enhancement, right? It makes the story stronger because we're able to kind of put a magnifying glass on those things without um, naming them in the same way that, you know, an academic paper might not. And mm-hmm. that's, it's, it's beautiful. Like fiction is so important. Um, and I think it does both of those things. It shields and it magnifies, which I think is just fantastic and I think it's just what one of those big benefits of writing reading speculative fiction do you think we're doing a good job of diversifying the book industry so far and if what what can we do better you know I think I think it's a hard question right because the publishing industry is immensely more diverse than it was for example 10 years ago right Mm -hmm. like like growing up in high school I couldn't tell you a book written by an Asian American writer. I just, I didn't know any, like at all. (laughs) Um, And today I just, we just went through like so many and I could probably name so many more if I look through um, the, like my Goodreads red shelf. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that we are in the right direction at the very least, but you know, there is so much further that we can go. Um, their publishing is still majority white, majority cisgender, heterosexual, like it's just very much the powers that be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're doing an okay job of getting there. But I think we also have to remember that, you know, writing is political and publishing is political. Um, and these, these feelings are so deeply ingrained, like these feelings of like white supremacy and just, um, the propaganda that the powers that be have given us and ingested in us that it's like, it's ingrained in us. Right. And it's so difficult to kind of move forward from that. And people legitimately benefit from stories that aren't diverse, right? Because we've talked so much about um, diverse novels and the impacts that they can have. Um, so I think we're going in the right direction, but it is just, it's, it's 
going to be a long and hard journey. I think that we are so far from where we should be. Um, and because of the lack of diverse novels, I personally think that we need to have um, a majority diverse novels because people just haven't heard these perspectives. Um, and if we have a majority of diverse novels, also just, you know, the the ideal person, quote unquote, right, um, cis, hat, white, man, um, that just doesn't exist. Neurotypical, like these people don't exist. Like they kind of do, but it's all fake. Like I was reading a statistic how like 75% of people are neurodivergent, right? Um, or have anxiety, depression, which is neurodivergency. Um, and I hear you typing. Maybe you're looking up the statistics. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think what's happening is like it's it's hard to. Um, I just think that the majority of novels need to talk about these types of things because the majority of people relate to the powers that be less than we think we do. Mm -hmm. um, like, sure, I, for example, have benefited from white supremacy, right? And I acknowledge that all the time, um, or I try my very best at the at least, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it's very ingrained in me. I have benefited from it, and I think that there is there's an agenda, right? And there always is. Everyone is biased, but I think that it's it's going to be a long and difficult journey because publishing diverse novels is going to really hurt or not hurt. It's yeah, it's going to hurt some people. And especially since we're thinking about these big 5 or big 4 publishers who are owned by the same people that own the rest of media, mm -hmm. right? Um so I think I think we're doing an okay job. I think we're on the right path and I think the more people that take up arms to read diverse books and understand these different perspectives, I think are going to help so, so much. I agree. And from a writer's perspective, um, I feel so encouraged as I'm seeing more diverse books being published, especially when I first started my writing journey, like two, three years ago, I, I was like, I felt like I was dipping a toe like in fresh you know, in a pool that no one else had jumped in yet because I and I didn't know what it was going to be like because yeah. I hadn't seen anyone else try to attempt what I was trying to do which in a way worked in my favor because agents are like I've never never seen this before what you've submitted it's either going to be really good or it's not going to sell because it's so strange <laughs> yeah and I was like well I'll take that risk but um in my experience so far I definitely hold some insecurities as far as what seems to be prevalent in the book industry and what I'm bringing to the table. So yes. um, one of them is the general cultural or the industry's expect expectation of certain cultural norms, like what reconciliation looks like. Yeah. Um, I think. Totally. Yeah. Right. So um, <laughs> in my household, my mom, my mom maybe said sorry to me uh, five times in my entire life. And I think that's even pretty good. And the way yeah. that you show reconciliation is very different. It's not verbal. It's through acts of service and gifts and at least with my, my family and showing up with cut fruit. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, I yelled at you half an hour ago, but pretending it never happened. You know what I mean? Like, We're over it. We've moved on. Yes. <laughs> exactly. That reconciliation. There's no, um, you know, hard feelings that gets carried over. Um, but and I, I see this get brought up a lot. Um, uh, there's like even Shang-Chi and um, I'm mm -hmm. trying to remember, there was another Asian movie that came out recently. And then even Encanto with um, 
like uh, with cultures that are very that have a lot of similarities um that the fact that you have these characters that are saying i'm sorry on screen and mm-hmm. every time i see that i'm like oh like does that happen to other people <laughs> like <laughs> i feel so left out and 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 then it act, and then it happened to me um where i started receiving feedback of this doesn't feel like there was actual reconciliation. But when I had beta readers that had my similar background, they're yeah. like, the reconciliation okay. is better than what I would even imagine in real life. Yeah. That- and they've never seen these, they'd never seen it in media, right? So they're like, wow, this is amazing. I love this reconciliation. And it speaks to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's better than you think. But then, you yeah. know, the people in the industry or whatever who don't understand. Um, I think that goes along with, you know, oftentimes books are picked up because they have similar similarities to other books that have a good track record for selling. And mm-hmm. I think that's another reason why it's going to be such a long and hard journey to get these novels out. Um, but I'm yes. sure that your reconciliation is totally fine. But I understand that, yeah. um, you know, someone who doesn't have that background wouldn't really wouldn't get it but we have to understand that we need we need people from every aspect or every like position in the industry to really get on board with this because we need to understand that you know just because it is different from another book that maybe didn't sell or it's similar to a book that maybe didn't sell or it's different from a book that did sell um doesn't mean that your book won't sell Exactly. And it comes down to the resources, too. I remember when Shang-Chi first came out, there was a lot of discourse over the lack of advertising resources that um, Disney was putting towards it, or Marvel. Yes. And the fact that it ended up being like the most successful, um, probably because they were able to leverage that discourse as marketing. Um, And the fact that we were, I was just really excited to see Shang-Chi. But yeah, it's about the resources you also choose to to give a book. It is, yeah. And a lot of times, you know, authors of color don't always get the same kind of marketing budget as, you know, an author who's writing the exact same story that has a book similar to a story that's been on the New York Times for like 10 years. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Okay, so then another insecurity I have is the (laughs) the buckets of audiences. So you have your young adult and your adult. And, uh, and of course, middle grade and, and, and like youth. Or yeah. What is the youngest one, actually? I don't actually know. I'm trying to think what my kid reads. Uh, Beginner yeah. readers? I don't know. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I've moved past that age. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, right. I'm, clearly, I'm not writing for that age group, so I'm <laughs> terrible. I'm sorry. Oh, and I should, quick disclaimer, if you are of an, in an Asian American family who who feel like the, the reconciliation with the saris does happen to you, Clearly, I'm not, you know, diminishing or saying that that's not realistic. I'm very, I'm very happy and very jealous <laughs> that that yeah, happens. Yeah, our experiences are not a monolith. Everyone's different. Um, there's mm-hmm. just some trends that a little that are, you know, even half or less than half. Yeah, we're just we're exactly. all different. Exactly. So. I'm looking at the young adult versus the adult expectations. What serves as, you know, what the industry wants for a young adult, young adult, what the industry wants for adult. And something that I find interesting is that depending on the your culture in your home, what may what you the the relationship you may have with your parents as an adult may seem young adult. And um, yeah, I know. Yeah, that's interesting. 
so in my case, my mom was, oh, she was so strict. And I wasn't allowed to date until I was 18. I, I did anyway. But anyway, <laughs> I, snuck, I, I, you know, you're a teenager in America. You find ways. <laughs> but, um, uh, but a lot of my firsts were after the eight, were like 18 and up. And it's because of those um, expectations in the home. And so then the relationship I had with my mom, that's what I read about in like American young adult books. And in fact, I'm shocked that these young adult books are showing things that I no way I was, would have been allowed to do. Until oh, my, yeah. You know? <laughs> yes. So when, we, when we're talking about opening up the industry for diverse voices, there are certain systemic uh, buckets that I'm calling them buckets, I guess, that aren't friendly to these cultural sensitivities. And when you're trying to have a a perspective that keeps saying, oh, it feels more like this than this, you know, it's, it, this sounds too young. Then you're, you're, you're kind of silencing that whole section of that culture that has that experience because you're not fitting that perfect bucket. But that, that's my personal experience. No, you're, you're right. I think um, another interesting thing um, with regards to YA versus adult um, is that oftentimes, um, it go, it, this goes actually like way more than initially thought with your thought, you know, authors of color, a lot of women authors, even if they're writing for an adult audience, they get shelved as YA. Mm-hmm. I've seen throughout all genres, right? We see that a lot with... Um, like you were saying, like for just like fiction, right? Because like adult relationships are infantil- infanticized. Um, infanticized, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, <laughs> um, infanticized. Um, but we see this in, this is something that I feel like not everyone pays attention to. Um, whereas your point, I think, is um, very, very interesting. I've actually never thought of that. But um, for example, like Fonda Lee's J City is. for an adult audience like it is very high fantasy it is just I'm pretty sure the characters are like in their 40s um but something that she struggled with because being an Asian woman is her book often gets shelved with young adult fantasy Ah, mm. um and that just honestly like there's there's um her the characters are in their 40s I believe um the it's very high fantasy and like most young adult novels are not quite as high fantasy um it's more along the the lines of you know like um George R. R. Martin Brandon Sanderson type of novels right um but she still gets shelved in YA um which I think is so interesting in the I in that same vein of like you know different cultures are seen as younger especially from a woman's perspective. Mm -hmm. Yes. I definitely see that too, from the idea that uh, I I remember being told this, there's a lot of male voices in science fiction. We need more women's voices. Okay. So let's give it, get it out there. But then there (laughs) seems to be this added layer of, well, if it's a woman's voice, then it has to fit this pseudo sci-fi genre of of what we think a women's fiction version of sci-fi would be. Right. And suddenly it's not so high fantasy or high, I'm sorry, hard science fiction. Um, it's, it almost seems to have like we want what basically what I'm trying to say is I would love to see more hard science fiction novels where the woman is having action oriented storytelling and it isn't so focused on just characterization. 
Yes. But give her the hard fan the hard fantasy, the hard science fiction experiences. Totally. You know, something very interesting. Um, so something that I looked into for my blog, right, is I try and understand more of like origins of genres um, and just the history of them. And going along with that, I think it's very interesting to touch on where hard science fiction kind of came from. Um, so um, science fiction was kind of born in the pulp thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just like, the pulp era was essentially just like, it was cheap to print. So there was a lot of competition and you just wanted to be as absurdist as possible to kind of get noticed. Mm-hmm. We didn't really dive into too much nuance, right? Because people didn't have the time for that. It was cheap to print. So they just printed a ton, a ton of stories. Um And that's where science fiction was born. Um, But what's interesting is that, like, you know, that hard science fiction kind of comes from that, like, quote unquote, golden age of science fiction, where it was in direct response to that, like, pulpy, absurdist type of science fiction is trying to kind of reject that and create something that's more, um, I hate to say this term because it's racist, but um, highbrow. Um, and they're trying to create something that's more um, suited for, you know, um, smart people, civilized people, right? Mm, gotcha. Um, okay. And so that's where these like very strict narratives of hard science fiction kind of came from. Um, and because it's completely constructed, right? All genres are constructed. Um, but because it was in direct response to all of that, like absurdist, pulpy stuff, it's very it became very white man oriented. And mm. so the main characters are white men, the writers are white men. Um, and I, it kind of pushed out any other kind of stories because the people who have access to these scientific um, knowledge, whatever, um, were more likely to be white men, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, there these things if we look in the history of genres it's just so interesting to see where they came from and it it gives you more reason to like you said want to push for these women perspectives in this quote-unquote hard sci-fi right because we they were pushed out something that like a lot of people don't think about the history of genre and when they do they're not thinking about the people that actively got pushed out of it and so when we're writing these diverse novels and you're exactly like your call to action for writing women or authors of color into hard science fiction is it's completely subverting that and I think Mm -hmm. that is so strong so powerful well (laughs) I'm so glad I got to got those get that it's been I've been sitting on these feelings for a little while (laughs) I've been trying to figure out how to express them I'm just really glad I got to express them with you because I feel like it was super fun awesome okay well my gosh anytime of course (laughs) (laughs) cool that's great okay so my final question for you is you know thank you so much for being uh with me today is there anything you'd like to promote or leave us with um you know I think just reading diverse books you know just like that is my whole my whole thing I just want people to be connected to stories that speak to them personally. And I want people to read books that they don't personally connect with because it'll help build empathy towards the people that do connect with them. Um, I 
always like push diverse books on all my social media, on my website. Um, I'm always open to recommendations. Um, I just want people to those books, right? I think that is something, I think it's very impactful to our culture, our society, and I think more people need to do it. And so that is what my whole mission is. So if I would love to like have anyone on the journey with me on bookish brews or just my social media. I'm always open to um, maybe giving recommendations if I have time or whatever. Like I want to help. Right. Um, so I am just here to help and hoping to help other people do the same thing as me. Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.